everyone. Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Witching Hour that, Haley, I think I can speak for you right now, too. We're very excited about this interview because we have the director of the Fear Street movies with us. And uh, I mean, I'll just flat out say I'm obsessed with 1994, which is all we're talking about on this edition of The Witching Hour. So, Lee, huge congratulations to you. It's something else. I seriously can't get over it. I might have watched the movie more than once. (laughs) <laughs> that's so kind thank you <laughs> co-sign all of that it is wonderful and I'm so excited to have an hour to pick your brain about it <laughs> great pick your brain about that and more because we wanted to start by going back to what happened immediately after honeymoon came out one right. is the success of a movie like that something that opens more doors for you and two if it does How do you kind of take hold of all those opportunities and really make something with it? Because a lot of directors hit the festival circuit. They come out with something that's really, really special. And then the momentum doesn't exactly build like it has for you. Totally. It was I was very, I think, very lucky in that Honeymoon was really embraced by the festival community and then also the horror community um, in a way that was amazing and kind of like exactly what I had hoped for to happen with that movie. Um, And so right after the movie, like shortly thereafter, I think I I started getting more opportunities to direct television. Um, right away, which was huge for me to be able to like get paid to direct something. Because <laughs> I, I obviously got paid for Honeymoon, but that was an indie. So it was it was small. So I was like, whoa, this is like a thing. Like I'm actually might be able to make a career of this. Um, so I was lucky enough to direct a few episodes of Scream, which was on MTV at the time. Um, and then I directed an episode of this show called Outcast, which Robert Kirkman um, created for Cinemax, which was an amazing opportunity. Um, and in the meantime, my writing partner, Phil and I were, We were writing our own stuff and we were also lucky enough to get hired to write on studio movies. Um, And somewhere in that like kind of whirlwind of things, um, I was attached to do the remake of The Craft, which I love. Um, And then ultimately that didn't work out schedule wise. Um, But right around that time, which is, it's so crazy. It's like, when I say this now, I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe it's been this long. But it was like 2017 that I had my first conversations about Fear Street. Um, And so, yeah, it's been a long time. (laughs) I have a TV follow-up question because I do love the Scream TV series and Outcast is quite good as well. Are those two things situations where you're able to, you know, have something pitched to you and say, yes, this speaks to what I want to do or... Because I imagine at that point, it's difficult to say no to something. Was there ever an opportunity to direct maybe another show that kind of didn't speak to your sensibilities as much as I think as a viewer, those two shows did? Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, there were other shows that I kind of had gotten sent the scripts for that I, it just wasn't, it wasn't something like in my wheelhouse. It was maybe, there were maybe opportunities that like were things that I would watch. But as far as like me being the right person to direct it. I just didn't quite like connect. Like there were some things that were like a little more drama based and, and I will watch a lot of that, but I like to move the camera and I like genre. So it was like scream and outcast were right in the sweet spot of, of those two things. So, yeah. Obviously it's like, it's always a bummer when a project doesn't come together and I would love to have seen your version of the craft, but because this, 
first installment, 1994, plays so closely with the hallmarks of that time period in horror. Did you end up finding out that any of the work you had put into that turned out to be really useful coming on to something that was very mid 90s focused? No, you know, the only kind, because I feel like, well, okay, so The Craft, I think, was also 96, which is when Scream came out. Scream was definitely the touchstone for, for 94, the 94 version, uh, part of Fear Street. Um, I would say that the, the main, the movies are so different, kind of like, even tonally, I would say, that the, the main thing, this is weird, but I did do, I was just like starting to do like kind of preliminary, like costume, like thinking when I was on the craft. And so some of that, some of that kind of like deep cut, like outsider, like grunge, like look was something that like those like reference images I could bring over, like when I started working on Fear Street. But other than that, they were kind of totally different universes. Um, so not as much, but a little. <laughs> I feel like I might be crossing a line, but are we allowed to ask you anything about what your rendition of the craft was going to be like? Is it anything like what we wound up getting, which we're both big fans of, but I yeah. imagine your version would have been a bit different. It, you know what? It was like the difference was when I was um, when I was attached to it, it was at Sony and I can't remember. I don't remember if the new version also was at Sony, but it the new version became a Blumhouse movie, which was like a smaller kind of budget. And so like the version that Phil and I were working on was just a different movie. It was bigger. It was just like a little bit bigger. Um, and and yeah, so that, that that's what I would say. It was just like more of like a, that's it. <laughs> I can kind of picture it, or at least I can picture something. But um, I, do, I really like the one that came out and I love the original one. So I was kind of just really happy I was just happy that they made the movie. And you know what I mean? Like in the end, it was like, I didn't think that like it didn't work out schedule wise for me, but I was just very pumped that they still did it. And I, and I like it. So I'm, I'm happy about it. Very much agree with that. I dressed the part today. I got I my screen shirt I on. I see it. I, ha I had to. Any opportunity to wear this shirt, I'm going to take it. But speaking of my love for Scream, I'm kind of asking you for the secret sauce here. But what is the key to borrowing something from a classic or paying homage to a classic while still making sure it's not it's not using and abusing something that uh people loved before but it also has your own spin on it because this is one of the i think this is one of the best balanced you know way ways of doing that that i've seen in a while because i'm very sensitive to the way that scream is is used and uh i think you do it quite well here Thank you. Um, I don't know. That's a big question. The uh, Scream for me is maybe, I mean, I think it's one of the best movies ever made, period, like horror aside. It's, it's so brilliant and it's daunting. It's daunting when you go back and watch that movie and you're like, I'm going to use this amazing, brilliant masterpiece as an inspiration. Um, but one of the things that I really like love about it, obviously the, the filmmaking is incredible. The scares are incredible. Um, tonally, I love that it sits in this place where the characters are self-aware to a certain degree. Obviously it's living in that like very like, you know, self-referential like horror world, um, which I just thought was brilliant. And with Fear Street, I wanted to be able to walk a line that was, was doing the things that you said that like paid homage to it and everything, but didn't dip too much into being parody. Um, so I wanted to like have nostalgia in, in all three, you know, kind of installments of Fear Street, but but never, but still try to do something new. Um, 
So a lot of that just came from the story. And I think the fact that like Fear Street isn't just 1994, but that we had the space to kind of let these characters expand over the three generations, let it become more than just, you know, just like a thing that was like, hello, Scream, you're perfect, you know? Um, and, and also the other thing about making, making a movie now versus the mid nineties is that I think audiences and also, um, you know, production companies and studios will allow you to tell a story with protagonists that we didn't see as much back then. So that was really cool and important to Fear Street because Fear Street is a story about outsiders in a very different way than like the characters in, in Scream. So all of that just like let it become organic in a different way, but still kind of like bow down at the altar of perfection that is Scream. <laughs> you mentioned your sort of sprawling narrative that you get to play with in this really unique structure and production approach you took. Was there, and I know we're avoiding spoilers for some of the, yeah. the other generations, but broadly speaking, was that one of them in particular sort of the, the seed of the idea that you grew from? Uh, how did you arrive at these specific timelines and which are, you know, that's out there. We know there's timelines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, honestly, like what we did was, so I got hired to direct the movies and to, to write the movies and kind of be like the, the person, the vision of it. And um, I had a small writer's room with my writing partner and Kate Trefry, who wrote movie three with me and then Zach Olkowitz who worked on movie two. And it was a small writer's room. It was only for like a couple, like four weeks, five weeks, something like that. And we really kind of tackled the entire thing. It was always like, we're telling this big sprawling story. And we had um, Peter Chernin, who is my producer, had this idea of wanting to release kind of like a trilogy all in the same year. That was his idea that he kind of brought to the table and was brilliant. And I think he was like, I don't know how we're gonna do this, but it's cool, we should do it. And the challenge that we had was okay, but now it's more than an idea. Like, how do we actually make these something that people would wanna see in like a close amount of time and also not feel like they're just getting jerked around? Cause at the time when we were developing, the movies were still theatrical. So this is a long winded way of getting to answer your question. But, but basically we, what we came up with was that we were doing something kind of new that is like this hybrid between movies and like between traditional television content. So we wanted each movie to feel satisfying and like kind of complete in its own, like resolving of the main tension. And then also we wanted to make sure that the narrative that was driving us forward into the third movie was staying compelling and like we were still uncovering new things. And, um, and the idea of using the three different time periods kind of grew out of that. And I've always just been obsessed with this idea of, um, you know, history repeating itself and like how like the wrongs of the past can keep coming back until you write them. Um, so it just became this kind of really fun thing. And then as a horror fan, I placed one of them in the mid nineties cause I felt like that was like its own era of slasher. And then seventies was obviously the heyday, like that, like that little kind of border between late seventies and early eighties. Um, and then 1666 is obviously a whole new, whole new ball game. Going back to the interview that we did, a good while ago, at that time, you told me that you were more, you considered yourself more a sci-fi fan than a horror fan. And there were yeah. some gaps in your knowledge. It, it sure. sounds like that might've changed to me. 
<laughs> well, I still think that like sci-fi is like my like main thing that I'm into. I but I I certainly grew up like I don't know if we talked about this in the initial interview because I was a kid in the 80s renting horror movies on VHS for slumber parties was like the pinnacle. So I I would say that like the thing that's intimidating to me still is that especially when you're on like the festival circuit and you're like amidst like all of the midnight movies, everyone has seen every tiny horror movie that has ever been made. That is still not me. <laughs> so I feel like I have a very good breadth of knowledge of like mainstream, like, and not even just mainstream, but like when we start to get like real deep cut, I'm like, oh no, that's like next level. I'm still not there. I mean, I have a lot still to do there, but yeah. It's understandable. It makes me look forward to one of our uh, two questions that we always end our episodes on, but I'm going to save that for later. All right, good. You're talking a little bit about the the earlier days of working on this and you, you said it was 2017, right? Yeah, it was 2017 that I got hired. Yeah. So did you get caught up in the Fox Disney of it all? And if so, what was it like watching all of that happen around you when the project, I think, was originally meant to be distributed through 20th Century Fox? Oh, yeah, it was wild. It was wild. It was it was really weird. And, you know, we kind of so. So, yes, we were at Fox and we, we I think we wrote like the first drafts of the scripts and then cut to 2018. And we were kind of in what I would call like a soft prep. Like we were we were inching closer to the green light. And that's when things started to happen, <laughs> like like at the studio at a level that like I kind of only understand still to, to, the, to this day, but it became a very like kind of complicated political situation as Fox was trying to like figure out like what movies could they make? How were they making movies? What would the merger mean? We The merger hadn't been like immortalized yet, but we, we knew it was coming. Um, and we, when I say we, like me and the, and the producers, we were just like driving home. Like we believe in these movies. We've worked on these movies. They should be made. They need to be made. And we were just driving forward, like trying to get that green light. And um, they, they went away for a second. Like there was a brief moment in 2018 where things got a little like, you know, full of turmoil, I'd say. And, and I didn't think they were going to happen. I went and I shot a pilot. And then when I was shooting the pilot, I, um, I got a call from one of my producer being like, no, 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 we're back. Like this is going to happen. And then um, beginning of 2019, I was prepping for real. And then we shot all of 2019 and then the merger actually happened, <laughs> which was just crazy. Cause it's like, oh, I, you know, I love a Disney movie like anyone else, but like, my God, like these are not Disney movies. What does that mean? And what does Fox mean? And what, like, you know, there was like that fear of these movies were always R rated. Um, and that was important to me. Cause I feel like, like there's a lot of good PG 13 horror movies, but slasher movies need to be rated R. And, um, and so there was that panic too, of like, is this a fight that I'm going to have to have down the line to preserve like the violence and the blood and the sex and the, the, the swearing. And I don't know. So there was a lot of that, but at the end of the day, you know, Fox supported us and they got the movies made and, um, and, and that's, that's all I can say. And then obviously we got into post and then pandemic happened. And then that was like a whole, whole other thing. <laughs> so at what point did you, uh, 
did you find out that it was going from a theatrical release to a streaming release? And did that did that change anything in post-production? Um, so we found out kind of, I'm trying to think when it was, it was in the middle of, oh my God, what year are we in? We're in 2021. <laughs> it was in the middle of 2020 that, and, and he, the thing is, is that Netflix had always wanted the movies. They had been pursuing the movies from like a very early time, like before we had made them. Um, because they heard about the experiment of like movies that were connected and, you know, they like to do cutting edge stuff. So they were interested then, but at that time we were firmly still at Fox. Um, and so as soon as the merger started happening, they started sniffing around more, I would say. And then, yeah, so it was like the middle of 2020 that we moved over to Netflix and like, just candidly for me, it was a dream come true um, because I knew that Netflix immediately understood the movies I knew that they were going to support the movies, how they needed to be supported as far as like the music that needed to be in it and like amazing VFX and things like that. So nothing really, um, nothing changed post-wise. Like I feel like it only got better in that regard. I know like you, it has to come out. You have to see how it does all of that. But because yes. this has been such a, I think I can safely say unique journey for a film to take to distribution. Yeah. When you get picked up by Netflix, I have to imagine these were designed as a potential franchise starter. Do they have those conversations with you when they pick it up? Is that something they wait to have later? What is that evolution like? I mean, it was, it was, an, it, there, it was part of like the initial conversation, certainly with Fox, like, and because I remember part of my first pitch that I had with Fox was this is like, the potential of Fear Street is basically horror Marvel. Like we're creating this universe where you can have all of these different killers in all of these different timelines and timeframes and things like that. And to me, that was part of the excitement of the franchise. Like I was focused on this, right? Like I just wanted to make these three movies amazing, but, but as just a fan, and also with like my business brain, it was like, oh shit, like there's a lot that we can do here. So that was part of that conversation. And certainly it was part of the conversation when we moved over to Netflix. Cause I think, you know, they're also excited about the potential of, of the universe. Describing it as horror, horror Marvel is making me put into perspective right now why this has become like my dream come true. <laughs> Is it, is it just a big old coincidence that so many people that are involved in Stranger Things were in your movie in front of the camera and also behind the lens as well? No, not at all a coincidence. So, well, partially, okay, so my husband is one of the creators of Stranger Things. So he, I knew Sadie um, from, from that show, from like being on set when they were filming. Um, Maya, I had also met and I had this like weird kind of like, it seems crazy now because it was so long ago, but I knew, I cast her before her character had premiered on the show. So I knew that like, she was kind of like, gonna be like one of like, if it went well, she would hit as like a fan favorite from, from the show. And I thought that it was a perfect kind of like homage to Drew Barrymore and Scream and that whole world. So, um, I felt like that was like some privileged insider information that I had, but then it like fucking took forever to make the movies anyway. So, but anyways, but, um, and then as far as like my crew, um, Ross and Matt actually stole my production designer from honeymoon 
he's the production designer on the show and our set deck on um, our set designer on honeymoon now was a production designer. So I worked with him, Scott, and then we stole Jess, Jess is our set deck and, um, and Sean, our art director on this movie also works on stranger things. And we had a lot of crew that crossed over just because it's, um, it's Atlanta. Um, but I knew a lot of them and it was great. And so, yeah, so that's like the, the weird like connection to all of that. I love that so much. Yeah. <laughs> Come to the way you shot it. And it's probably a great thing that you knew a lot of these people before, because how do you prep a crew to do three different movies back to back in different time periods with completely different aesthetics? Yeah, I mean, that is a testament to like how amazing my art department was, like honestly, and then also costume um, camera, we spent a lot of time in prep, like discussing how we would be, we would be changing our style depending on the style of the the era that we were, you know, taking place in. But um, art department, I think had it, art department and costumes probably had it the hardest, like when we were on the ground, because we were always chasing that next thing and it's so schizophrenic it's it's it was great that we had people that had series background but it it was totally different than that um because we had new we had a new place we had like a whole new universe that we had to create with each movie um so when we would be firmly shooting 94 they're working ahead building the village for 1666 and you know obviously like constantly like assaulting me with questions about it. And I'd be like, I'm like fully in the nineties. And now you're talking to me about the 17th century. And then the same thing happened. Like once we did 1666, we had to start thinking about the seventies and camp. And it was like, it was crazy, but I, um, I don't know. I, I joke, like, it was like, we were in a black hole where there was like no past and no future. There's just, like, <laughs> there's only this moment in front of us. Was there any particular reason you went in that shoot order? Um, well, we, we share a lot of cast between 94 and between 1666. And so it made sense. And 78 always was going to have kind of its own like cast for the camp part of it. So it made sense to kind of live in the, all of the nineties first to start out the world. Like that was our beginning and nineties is the present of our, of our trilogy. Um, and then we did, we went into 66. So basically we could shoot out all of our 94 cast there and then end on 78 and the new cast. I want to go into some spoilers for 94 so badly, but before we do that, yes. can you tell us a little bit about the casting process? Because your main ensemble in 94, that is like, they're not just good. I feel like you only get special ensembles like that every so often where you become like very attached to them within minutes of the movie starting. It's very impressive. Oh, I really appreciate that. I agree. I really feel like that too. Um, and I'm really excited for audiences to kind of like see them and meet them. Um, so, and it's kind of like, so like, okay, Benji who plays Josh carries like crazy exposition on his back and he sells it he sells it and he's so likable and he's so believable and kiana who plays dina and uh, olivia who plays sam like their chemistry and their vibes like it was just it was really perfect and then i that's like not even to begin to talk about fred who plays simon and and julia who plays kate who are like scene stealers like they were like in the hands of like lesser actors they would just be 
kind of set dressing, you know, that are just like, they're around the edges, like to have a snarky comment, but I feel like you grow to love them and understand them because the actors are so like incredible. Um, so I knew a few of them because I had done this pilot and I had, um, I had like come across them in that. And, um, and then others I just found, like I had never seen Fred before. I had never seen Benji before. Um, Ash was new to me. Ash who plays uh, Nick Good, he was also new to me. Um, and I don't know, it just kind of all, it all came together in a way that they just like, they felt alive in the read, you know, um, and it worked. <laughs> Haley, Haley's gonna know this. Do you know why I thought Fred was just the coolest? Cause he reminds me of a younger version of Logan Miller. <laughs> and that vibe, it just like, it, it, it feels right. Yeah. He's so good. Totally. I love that vibe. He's so good. Um, I had a, a question I wanted to ask before we move into spoilers as well. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, knowing the internet, I think yeah. we're about to have a very not super fun debate about the differences between movies and TV again when this comes out. Sure. Uh, it happened with Small Axe. Yeah. Since this is growing to streaming, I imagine that'll happen. I think what's cool is that <clears throat> the way you framed it before was at accepting that you were working from structures from both of those mediums. Yeah. Um, was there ever any pushback on that from people who are like, no, this needs to be approached like a film, it's a cinema experience. And how did you, you know, take sort of the best elements to create your vision? It was, it wasn't like, it wasn't pushback per se, but there was a lot of like, um, kind of just like weird philosophical conversations about like, how do we do this? And, and, and having to kind of like, like the writers and I, I feel like when we cracked it, we were like, okay, we understand what we're doing now. We understand the thing that we have to do, which I, you know, I said earlier about like, tell this like complete story, but also keep us pushing forward. But then we would constantly have to remind the producers or the studio and like bring, because they weren't living in it every day with us. So there was a lot of that of being like, yes, we want cliffhangers, but we don't want cliffhangers that don't resolve we don't want to not resolve the primary tension of this movie because like, what are audiences going to feel like? Are they, you know, I didn't want to feel like, I didn't want audiences to feel like we were tricking them into a gimmick. I wanted it to feel like it was the reason we were doing the three movies is because we had to, because of the story, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, so it there was, there was a lot of like, still like, and also no one knows, right? So when we were theatrical, it was like, we had this idea, like maybe we'll do it once a month, maybe we'll do it. But no one had really like cracked what that time frame was gonna be. Um, when we got to Netflix, we actually did a few different preview structures to see like what it would be like if people had access to all three at once, if they had to wait this long or this long. And we kind of landed on this, what I think was the perfect kind of thing, which is like one a week which is so cool because it's still like an event, but it's also like not so long that you're like, oh, God damn it, like, fuck you, Spear Street, so. <laughs> Wait, to backtrack there, preview structures, do you, do you mean like uh, like promos that you released that tapped into it or oh. some sort of testing experience? Yeah, like testing, like preview ah. testing. So we had like two different groups of like, I don't know how many people, 500 people each, and one of them had like access to, all of the movies for a week straight and they could kind of like click in and watch when they wanted and then the other ones had it like spaced out and and it was like the the testing was very similar 
like depending. There was like a little bit of wiggle room. There was like a little bit, but it was it was very negligible, um, which was interesting. Well, yeah. I can confirm that they make for a great binge watch. Really enjoyed that process. I'll be excited yeah. to see how like, um, to play along with the week to week too, because you're right, it does make it a bit of an event. Yeah, but I think it's fun also like, um, I hope it's fun. I just want to talk about like, ultimately when the movies come out, there's a lot of like fun things that you can go back and notice like once you get to the end. And um, so hopefully people finish and then are like, you know what, it's Halloween time, I'll watch it again, or, you know, whatever it is, and kind of like, have that experience. So we'll see. At, we'll at the very least, I can confirm because I don't think we're allowed to say anything about the uh, the second two movies. I can confirm that 94 is highly rewatchable. And I'm also like willing to say that I think it might be one of my favorite horror movies of 2021 so far. Awesome. I love to hear that. Fully yeah. addicted to it. Yeah. I th actually, I can ask you this in non-spoiler territory. Can you talk sure. a little bit about the the opening title sequence, which is just incredible? Like who who did you work with to craft that? And I don't know, maybe are there any are there any uh, little Easter eggs that people should look out for if uh, if they're watching it for the first time? Um, well, OK, so that title sequence, we did kind of we worked with this amazing editor named Hunter who did a temp title sequence for me early on in the process, um, which kind of used the, the idea of using headlines and then ultimately that was just kind of a proof of concept um, that we used. We, we took basically um, a set deck that was on Josh's wall. And, and that's what we used for like the first version of it. And then as we got like further into the process, we hired this amazing company named Elastic who kind of crafted this thing, which felt like I, I always want, like the main thing for me with Fear Street was fun. I want it to be fun, like above everything else. And, um, and they were able to just kind of make this like tonally cool thing which carries us through like the the 90s part of the sequence is like so bright and like neon and great and kind of like you know is what the 90s parts of the movies are and then we live in this like great tomatoey red for the 70s and then we get into this like black and white for the 1666 so there's lots of little there's little things in there that in when you get to the end of everything and you look back, you'll you'll see. Um, I don't wanna to talk too much about it. The best spoiler though, is that one of the, two of the people actually in the yearbook photos for the seventies are my parents. <laughs> so. I feel like I might've caught some other familiar names in the, uh, in the chat window along the side. There yeah. might be some behind the scenes people in that mix. Yeah, totally. One of our um, our post producer, like the head of post production at Netflix, his name is there. One of my VFX producers, my um, my hotmail name from <laughs> from the uh, the nineties was was Aaron Darkness at Hotmail Dunk. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's like that's where she comes from and then another one of my really good friends from high school that ended up marrying one of my college roommates actually his name is one of the names in the chat too because we like spend so much time on AOL chatting like I feel like it's where I got to be a really fast typer <laughs> I think we can probably all say that same thing it was so nice to tap back into that too I feel like I completely <laughs> forgot what that felt like but this movie just brought it all back all right, should we do it, Haley? Should we put up the spoiler warning? Yeah, I think. All right. All right, here it is. We are putting up your one and only spoiler warning for Fear Street 1994. Just in case you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to let you know it's going to be available on Netflix July 2nd. So you're you're watching it right now, right? 
you're going to pause this video, go watch it and then come back. And then you can press play and we start right here. All right. That's it. It's done. I think the first thing I need to ask you about is the scream homage in or homages in that opening kill sequence in particular, just to tap back into what we were talking about earlier, doing something that is, you know, as specific as the running shot that immediately brings back to the, to the Casey Becker stab as she's running out of the house. So how do you, how do you come to the decision to do something that is like, like from the movie like that? Um, I just fucking did it. And I was like, I don't, (laughs) I was like, I was like, it's so good. It's so good. And it's so horrifying. And I was like, you know what? Like, it's one thing that I'm lifting directly and I feel really happy about it and really good about it. And so I just did it. And um, yeah, there was that. And then I think the thing that made the sequence like ultimately different for me was that, and obviously like, whatever, spoiler, you already said, um, is that in our main, like in that opening mall sequence, we unmask him. Like we reveal right away who it is. And so it's like, oh wait, what movie am I in? So like, you feel like you've, you've been in this movie, you understand the slasher movie where like there's a killer and he's in a costume and like all of the thing. But then by unmasking him, we were able to do our own little twist on the, on the thing. So, and also like, just relatedly, this isn't really related to Scream, but I think it's an interesting thing. It's actually related to Honeymoon a little. I think I'm just interested in telling these like messed up love stories. Cause there's just like, <laughs> like the, Fear Street is a love story. Like at its heart is this love with Sam and Dina that like carries us through. And the reason I bring this up now is cause obviously that was the cool thing for me about um, Ryan and Heather in the opening too. Cause they were like flirty and liked each other and everything. And then it was like, oh, how can we destroy this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, so that's a good transition to something I wanted to ask about, which is you yeah. said, you know, you wanted this to always be fun, and it is. Yeah. It is also exceptionally brutal at times, and yeah. you do, like, you you set up a nice thing, and then you destroy it, and when I, the first time my hop gets stabbed, I was like, damn, damn it, I hate that she's about to die, yeah. but I didn't get, like, you know, sometimes that lets dark and it's a brutal feeling when that character dies how do you balance that I don't know you know it was kind of like the the way music has a lot to do with it like I think that like the the music kind of lets you feel like you're in a certain place safety wise where it doesn't and, and because we were early in the movie so early in the movie I wanted to make sure that we were still living in this kind of like horror snow globe I think that's like, I don't know if that really makes sense, but that to me, that's what it was. It was like, we were in this kind of stylized world of like, she's working late at night at the mall. And there's like these, these um, uh, nods to Fear Street in the books that she's like, you know, has at the B. Dalton's and everything like that. And, and basically work, we basically went back in time throughout the three. And as we went back from nineties into the seventies and then ultimately to 1666, the horror got more real and more bloody and more graphic. And and um, yeah, I think by the time you get to 1666, it's it's really, it's like, it's a very different type of horror and it's it's not fun. It's, it's some of it's fun and it gets fun when the 1666 part is kind of like wrapping up, but it's, it's brutal in a different way, so. 
Just so you know, I've watched the first two and I forced myself to stop because I was afraid I would want to go into the third one. Haley's watched all of them. So you're going to oh, get So yeah, Haley knows. Oh my gosh. But yeah, you got to watch that third one and see. Yeah. So I wonder, I wonder if some of my questions here are going to speak to what's to come in those. But actually, yeah. before I even get there, I do want to ask about one particular kill sequence that yeah. it, I'm not just saying this, like, I feel like it might wind up being one of the most memorable kill sequences I've, I've ever seen. It's the bread slicing one. <laughs> you had done so many things, to, like, as we were just talking about, to tee up that kind of level of brutality. But when that happened, there was an audible react, like, I cannot believe you just did that specifically to that character. How do you come up with that idea? And then please tell me everything about executing it on set. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it was kind of like, <laughs> I don't remember the genesis of it. I remember that we were very excited about having our climax of the 90s take place in a grocery store. Part of like the fun of the 90s movie for me was being able to kind of take suburbia and take these places that are really familiar and yeah and just like tear them apart and destroy them so I loved the idea of being able to be in the grocery store and um and we you know we kind of like went through this whole thing of having the characters have different areas of the store that they're in they're all trying to protect Sam and Kate ended up in the bakery and I, I don't know. I have these like weird things that I like. Like I like the idea of like cake mixing with blood. Like I just think it's like a cool like image. <laughs> and, and so at one point, like we just started kind of like riffing on like what could happen in that in that sequence. And then we, we came up with the bread slicer and it was like <laughs> it was one of those things that like when you're reading it, it's horrible. But then like you get closer to like doing it and you're like, wait, like this is like actually crazy. And how are we going to do this? And there were all of these conversations with our art department, with Scott, with Sean, with Jess being like, I don't think a human head would really do that. Like, I don't know if you could actually like, and they were like, they were like getting at me. They were like, I don't know. Like, this is like a little unbelievable. And I was like, it's fucking cool. So we're going to do it. And then they bought a bread slicer. <laughs> and they were like they like wanted to prove me wrong so they had this idea that they were going to throw watermelons through this bread slicer and they were convinced that it wouldn't work and the watermelon just went right through and it's just like it was like it was a big cheer moment like we were at the production office and everyone just started like clapping and like cheering and it was amazing and so then everyone was sold that this could happen <laughs> um and yeah, and I think it is, I think it's shocking because it's horrific and gross and terrible. And I think also because you love Kate and Julia did like such an amazing job of, of creating this character that you kind of see, you know, change and grow and, and we're late in the movie and it's late in the movie to kill. This is the thing, it's late in the movie to kill a character that is such a main character, but it's not late in our trilogy. So like that, that was kind of like the, the mindset behind it, that we needed real loss in order to keep our characters driving forward into the other movies. I feel like you've achieved that without okay. having seen the end. Excellent. I think also that like that whole debate you were having with your team, like the, the almost unbelievableness of it. Wow, words. But yeah. it makes it hurt slightly less somehow. 
Yeah. It is so late and you do grow so attached to that character. Yeah. Yeah, but it's yeah. a hell of a like a punchline to the scene, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> this might also dig into what's to come, but how did you settle on the assortment of killers that we see in this first movie? You know, the skull mask, et cetera. Like, was there any kind of mixing or matching to find the right group? Or I guess did the next stories necessitate it? Well, it was kind of like, yeah. So in obviously the seventies kind of provides the, the origin story for Nightwing killer. And the thing about like the different killers is we wanted to find people that felt iconic to these other eras. Um, and so obviously skull mask made sense in the nineties. Like there was, there was no other version of that, that I thought, cause it, I felt like it played homage to Ghostface, uh, Ghostface, but also it was its own thing. You could find the costume in a Halloween store or like a Spencer's type store. Um, and then with, with the Nightwing killer, um, he was supposed to kind of evoke that like classic, like, you know, killer axe killer in the woods type thing and down to his, you know, Buffalo check jacket. And so he definitely needed to be in the first movie because he was so much part of like how we were gonna drive into the second movie. Um, and then Ruby just like felt cool to me because you don't see a lot of like, you know, female like slasher killers period. So I just thought that was kind of fun. Um, but we had like, you know, we have other ones, which you see at the end of, um, of movie two. And it was hard. Cause it's like, I kind of wanted like everything, but we also needed to grow into like where we were going and, and leave, leave something to like, you know, kind of get to, but I, I don't know. So like we had the milkman and we have what we call the shame killer later on. Um, so yeah, I don't know. How did, for those ones that are, <clears throat> You know, obviously, as you spoke to, the the two first main ones really are pulled from the the styles of the era they're set in. When yeah. you go a little further back in history, where did you pull from for those designs? Um, I started looking at kind of like um, I spent a lot of time on Pinterest. One, looking at kind of like old masks. So that's where um, like the the killer that has the um, the metal mask that you see just a little bit in movie two and then you see a little bit more in movie three that comes from like a classic I think like 15th century German shame mask is what they were called so like they were like they looked like pigs or like different animals and if someone did something horrific they were made to make wear this mask and I just felt that that was like really grotesque and kind of like who knows what that guy actually did, but it seems awful. Um, and then Billy Barker, who you also only see a little bit in the seventies, you see more in, in the third movie, um, his kind of like misshapen face was, I found these like terrible photos of like depression era kids dressed for Halloween that were like not fun at all. They just look like, it was like, what are these like, these are the scariest masks I've ever seen. And so Billy's mask kind of came from that. And then, the milkman just felt like a very kind of iconic, like fifties, um, like, Oh, everyone knows like the milkman that used to come and like visit the housewives. But I like burned his face and kind of like made this whole backstory of him, um, having been in the war and coming back and being kind of like, um, you know, ostracized among his community and blah, blah, blah. And then Ruby was just like a fun kind of like sixties, uh, like sex pot type, like girl. So, yeah. Cool. All right, here's, an, uh, here's another question. I, Haley's already warned me that there's going to be an answer to this, but I want to know at least what, 
what you think is a priority to know right now. And it, it pertains to the rules of the world and specifically what your witch character is after and 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 why? I, I guess what can you tease about the rules in terms of, you know, why she possesses a certain someone to become a killer? Why those killers kill certain people, whether or not they have a certain someone's blood on them? Yeah. I, I know all these questions are probably no, gonna it's be a lot. Okay, so you'll definitely get all of the answers in movie three. Um, so I don't really know exactly how to talk about like the full situation. There, there's kind of like a thing happening. Okay, so the killers only kill shady siders unless someone is right in their path. Then they will kill whoever's in their path to get to the person who has disturbed Sarah Fear's grave. So bled on her grave. That's like the main kind of like mythology rules of what happens. So like, don't disturb Sarah Fear's bones or you're fucked basically. Um, and, and we obviously say like disturb is like specifically like if you bleed on them, but, um, but you have to kind of like get to, we, we ultimately do answer the question of like, what the fuck Sarah fear? Like, why are you such a, a bitch to shady siders? And like, what happened? And, and that's like part of 1666. And, and then you kind of start to understand all of the little nuances of what, of what happened. This might be one of my favorite explainer quotes of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I should have warned that there's zero chance that I wasn't going to swear like crazy during <laughs> We're always prepared for it. We do it enough I ourselves. Always, I always like come in and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to swear out loud in this. And then I just can't keep my mouth shut. So. I can relate tremendously. Poor Perry <laughs> has to deal with my foul mouth every Friday. Lovely. Good. I good. feel like it, it automatically comes with a Friday recording, but we're recording <laughs> on Monday, so we really have no excuse today. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> Haley, do you have any more spoiler questions that we can tap into now? Oh, boy. Um I, you know, I have to be so cautious and we just, threw, we just threw my brain to the third movie. Um, I will, while I, uh, buy myself some time, I will back up what you were saying earlier about how, after you've seen it all, you're probably going to want to go back and rewatch the first one. Cause that's yeah. my plan for tonight. And oh, lovely. great. There's like little things that I can talk about, which is like when you were a little bit like just spoiler wise, like when you get to you know, movie two shows you kind of the origin story of the sheriff of, of Nick Good and what he went through when he was in, in the 70s. And, and one cool thing is that you kind of see, if you look back, you see that Ash is kind of limping in 1994 and you see the origin of that in the 70s, which is cool and was, you know, a very good thing for Ash to do. And it was incredible. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. Good job, actor. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, I love Ash as an actor. I was a huge Manhattan fan. So when he showed up in the first movie, I literally went, Ash. Yes. I, so, I, I always associate those actors in Manhattan with you, Haley, because you know I edited that interview for you. Yep. Uh, I, I am loudly, constantly ringing the bell for Manhattan over the years. That, that's how I got to, that's how I became familiar with him too, was through Manhattan. I was like, I love this so much. I wish there was more of it. He's so good. Um, he's great. He's in succession too. He's been in a lot of things, but Manhattan was like the thing for me that I was like, he's slept on. Yeah. Um, I did want to touch on, I guess, the, 
the core queer romance at the heart of this thing. And you sort of, you know, referenced earlier that you get to tell stories that weren't being made when these 90s slashers were being made. Um, And again, I find myself not wanting to say the wrong thing. (laughs) Just the approach to it, I think is really lovely and that it frames that story the same way a straight romance would have been framed in the 90s, but doesn't feel out of touch. Um, was that always the core of your like emotional arc here? And, or was it something that came later as you developed your timeline? No, that was always that was always part of it. And, and it was interesting, like one of the things about, um, you know, like I referenced that killers, the killers only kill shady siders. And part of kind of the core narrative of the three movies is the idea that everyone who lives in Shadyside feels outside. They feel like other for some reason. They've been told by the world that like they're not good enough. They're never going to get out. They're they're not going to have a good life no matter what. And we kind of, um, you know, built the killers as kind of these like representations of systemic rot. Um, And I think that what making the narrative about that let us do is that all of our characters are these people who have been traditionally told by society that they're outsiders. And so being able to put a queer love story at the center of that, like specifically like in horror movies, um, queer, I mean, it, it applies to pretty much anyone, but who's not like a straight male. I mean, they die too, but queer women specifically have like a really bad track record in, in horror. Um, and, and so being able to kind of give them their moment and let their love kind of push the, the stories forward was really important. And, you know, I would also say that, like, it was it was important to like, so my writing partner, Phil, is gay. And we spent a lot of time talking about how do we make this? We wanted it to just be a love story. We wanted it to just be a teenage love story that felt very familiar to anyone who has not yet known exactly who they are, but know that they like have a connection with this other person. At the same time, we did, we wanted to be true to what it meant. It's, it's not being a queer person in the nineties was not the same as being straight. Like there was a lot of other things going on. So we wanted to be true to that too. And not just have characters who were fully out and like fully like fine with who they were. They're still going through things. So it was, it was a balancing act of like being able to like make the story feel just like universal and grounded in love, which, which is universal. And then also to still have some kind of nuance of like being a gay teenager in 1994 is different than, than what it is now. Um, so yeah. But you touched on like when I said, I like that it was framed the way a straight couple would have been. It's that they're allowed to be dicks to each other. Like they're not this perfected, idealistic, tragic couple situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. They, it's not, they're not always on the same page. Sam is like fucking unlikable at first. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like she, she's going through a lot. And, and so, yeah, we let them just be kind of like who they are but also still like obviously acknowledging that that their reality is different than than what like even like you know Kate's reality is in the movie. Um so yeah. I'm going to follow up that really deep answer with a really important spoiler question. Does is does the vending machine hack really work? 
No. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it, like it felt like something that really would be a thing in the nineties. And I spent a lot of time Googling it because I was convinced that there had to be a way that there was like secret codes that would work. I don't, I never found anything. There are like things there are like things that you can do if you're like a manufacturer that you like put in certain things and it will do it. But like the idea that there's like a really complicated, like, you know, A, B, whatever, two, nine, six, like thing is like, is me just wishing that there were more secret worlds underneath our own. I might've been Googling that after. Yeah, yeah, you and I had the same Google search then for that. <laughs> I'm glad we cleared that up for anyone else who might be Googling it now too. <laughs> All right, Haley, do we want to do our last two? I think we better before we run out of time. Would you like to do the honors first or would you want me to? Whatever. You go first. This All time. right. I'll go, I'll go first. We always end our interviews with the same two questions. And the first one is, do you have any pets? I do not currently have any pets. I had two dogs that unfortunately passed away right around the time I was making honeymoon. So not right now, but they were amazing. Their names were Fred and Hilda. They were whippets. They looked like monsters, not dogs. And they were incredible. <laughs> we, we've also determined that uh, plants count as pets too right now. <laughs> yeah, I have that. <laughs> I will uh, throw the other one at you, which is I imagine this is what Perry said she was excited yeah, yeah. to hear the answer to earlier. Um, we always ask our guests to offer a recommendation within genre storing, storytelling, whether it's movies or TV or games or whatever you love, just something that really captured you lately. Wow, okay, that's a hard one, obviously. I, when I'm filming and then when I'm like kind of in post, it's hard for me to like catch up on new things. I'm going to just talk really quickly about a lot of different things. So I have been rewatching the Great British Bake Off a fuck ton, um, which is crazy. I finally caught up on Small Axe and like really, 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 really loved Lover's Rock like a lot. I liked all of it, but like that one I thought was like beautiful. Um, but as far as like genre recommendations, I think this is, I actually played this game like a few, like a few years ago now. Um, it's called Inside. So it's by the makers, uh, it's an indie game. I played on the PlayStation, um, but I think you can get it on other platforms. And it's by the people that made this game called Limbo, which was really like very kind of popular when it came out, but Inside was their second game. And it is, it's not a long game, maybe like, ooh, maybe 20 hours. Um, and it has the craziest thing that I've ever seen in video games and maybe in just general like movies and TV, it has a thing that's like so crazy and so shocking. And like, actually we're not supposed to talk about the second movie and the third movie, but like, you know, the, the what we call the heart of darkness, I'll just say that, the heart of darkness that exists like under the town kind of like took a little bit of inspiration from this insane fucking thing that happens in this game inside. So that's my go and, and download inside and play that because it's incredible. It was a very strong pitch. <laughs> now I'm going to have to do that. It's so awesome. It's so awesome. I'm I also, not much of I'm a gamer, but now I want to. Same. I want to throw on a second, like, specific to you follow-up, since you were saying you're more honestly into sci-fi than horror. What's, like, 
what's your latest sci-fi addiction, whether it was last year or, you know, like you said, you're busy. Oh man. I don't, you know what? It's not actually a busy thing. It stresses me out. <laughs> it stresses me. It, it's like, I watch something every night, but it stresses me out to watch something that's like close to the thing that I'm doing. So that's why it's like, when I'm doing this, I'm watching Great British Bake Off or I'm watching, like I started rewatching Party Down. Um, like totally a different world. Um, I'm trying to think like the last, like, um, wait, I feel like I just watched something that I loved that was sci-fi and now I'm not gonna be able to, you know what? I always like going into this, I was like, I should think about this cause they're probably gonna ask me and now I won't, I don't know. But it's right there. It's on the tip of my tongue. I don't know. I don't know. All right, fair enough. I love how I'm like thinking about a million things right now. Like I'm going to give you a suggestion and that's going to be it. But no, yeah. there's like a million things out there. <laughs> so much is the thing that like you, I started making a list of everything that I'm like watching or reading or, or whatever, because I was like, I can't, I like a good list. And then also I just can't remember everything because it's so much. Every year, someone always tells me to start a letterbox and I start out the new year. Like I'm going to do it this year and keep track of everything I'm watching. And then I never do it. And then I regret it by the end of the year. And it's just a vicious cycle that repeats every single year. Totally. totally. <laughs> All right. We got to let you go. This was our spoiler filled talk about fear street. 1994 so that means you have not watched 1978 which is due out on july 9th and then there's also 1666 which you can catch on july 16th i mean congratulations like i i can't speak to 1666 yet and i'm not supposed to speak to 1978 so i'll just say that 1994 is fantastic and i can not congratulate you enough (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you guys both. Um, I'm excited for you to rewatch and I'm excited for you to see the third movie. So top priority right after this. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wait, before you go, you've officially survived the witching hour. 